And what I've seen people over the years in, come in and out of churches like this. They understand forgiveness and they understand moral goodness, but they don't understand free justification. They understand that if I confess my sins, I have a forgiving God, Jesus died on the cross, and I get forgiven. And now that I'm forgiven, I need to really live for him. And that's how most people think. They try hard to live like they should, and they, something makes them fail, or they just sort of fade away, and then things go wrong. They know they need God, then they come back in, and they recommit, and they ask for forgiveness. They ask for forgiveness. And they try their best to live a moral life, a good life, and then they sort of slip away, and then they have to ask for forgiveness again, and that's how they go on and on, and, on, and they never get to this at all, that God has made himself our sin, and that we have been made his righteousness. Therefore, we are in the sight of God the Father, as is the very Son of God himself. And it is available as a gift. It comes to us. It, 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 it lights upon us. And when we have it, it's the end of our struggle for validation, for worth, and for acceptability. Here's what will make you a Christian. Don't look at your sins. Look at your boasting. Look at what you boast in. Look at the things that you are your justification. Look at the things that you look at and say, that justifies my existence. That validates me. That's what makes me worthy. See, Paul says, where is boasting? The justification by free justification destroys it. What makes you a Christian is not so much that you repent of your sins. You should repent of your sins, but that can just make you just another Pharisee. No, what makes you a Christian is you repent of your justification, your false justification, your false righteousness. Nathan Coles. 1730s and 40s, a Connecticut farmer tells a story about how he was converted listening to the great evangelist George Whitfield. And he says, my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound, and by God's blessing my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness could not save me. By God's grace my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness could not save me. That's what makes you a Christian, not just a person trying harder, confession, trying harder, confession. Because free justification is infinitely more than just pardon, but radically different than just trying harder. Have you figured this out? Have you figured out what it means to be a Christian? Is not just to repent of your sins, but to repent of your false righteousness, to repent of your false, your false justifications, to transfer your trust from that to what Jesus has done. And dear Christian friends, those of you who say, well, I do believe this, and I do understand this, and I know what free justification is. If you really, really believed in the heart of hearts what you know with your head, would you really be anxious? See, won't you admit, in many of your cases, though you're a Christian, your wealth is not just your wealth. Your beauty isn't just your beauty. Your youth isn't just your youth. Your family is not just your family. They're your righteousness. But now, a perfect righteousness is revealed apart from the law for your performance. It's a righteousness that comes upon you. It's a righteousness that, that alights on you. It's, it comes to you. And it's the end of your struggle. I heard a fictional story once, a parable of sorts, about a man whose occupation was to earn God's love and favor. In fact, he would go to this fictional job site and he would sit down at his desk and from his nine to five work hours, he would simply do everything that he could to earn the love and favor of God. But 
like many of us, he would miss a quiet time here and there, and he would say a word that he said he was going to stop saying, and, and he would lash out at his kids when they would call him at work, and, and he would continue to mess up and mess up and mess up until eventually one day he decided, I don't think I'm cut out for this job. And so he wrote a resignation letter to God. And in his resignation letter, he wrote the words, Dear God, I hereby resign as the earner of your love and favor. So many of us in the Christian faith long for a relationship with Jesus that is about thriving And yet many of us have a relationship with Jesus that is founded on our striving. In other words, how many of us have given our life to Jesus? We've walked through the waters of baptism. We we attend church. We go to life group. We do all of these things. But it seems like every single time we're going to tell God, okay, God, I'm really going to do better this time. I'm not going to miss as many days of my Bible study. I'm going to stop saying those words. I'm going, to, I'm going to try really, really hard this time, God. I mean it. I mean it this time. How many times do we say something like that to God only to realize that this time would be just like the time before? We would fail at what we're striving to be. And if we're honest in our heart of hearts, When we hear people say things, preachers like me and such, who say things like, God will will never give up on you. Just keep going. You got it. Hang in there. Contend for the faith. Don't lose heart in doing good. We hear that and we say, yeah, I, I, I believe those things. But it's not about me worrying about God giving up on me. I'm worried about me giving up on me. I'm not worried about God holding up his end of the bargain. I know that he'll hold up his end of the bargain. But I'm tempted to throw in the towel on me holding up my end. Friend, if that's you this morning and you think that your job, your occupation, if you will, is to be the earner of God's love and favor, my prayer this morning is through the text and through the spirit and how it leads us, you would see that God is asking for your resignation this morning. You see, the thing about following Christ is resting in his finished work. Romans 4 teaches us about that finished work. So I would like to invite you to take your copy of God's word this morning and turn to Romans chapter 4. And church, let us be reminded that every time we open up the Scripture, every time that we look at our Bibles and read it and study it and meditate upon it, the living God of heaven and earth speaks. Every time we open up our Bible, He speaks to us. And so the book we're reading from this morning is not just some old ancient document. It's not just some collection of stories. It is the word of the living God who has revealed himself to us in his love and mercy. And so this may be a bit different than what we're used to, 
But would you stand in honor of reading God's word? Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, this is what the Apostle Paul says. What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to show you two realities of justification by faith. Two realities of justification by faith. And the first one is this. Justification comes by accreditation, not by reputation. Let me say that again. Justification comes by accreditation, not by reputation. Remember here, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church where? In where? Rome. He's writing to the church in Rome. And in 49 AD, the emperor of Rome, Claudius, ordered that all the Jewish people be taken out of the city of Rome. And so with no Jewish community around, all that was left in the Roman church were the Gentiles. And so you can imagine um, this setting of the people who were church members and they're told to leave. And it just leaves a group that was really the outsiders before they left. But by the time the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Roman church, Claudius had died. And all of the Jewish people that were sent out of Rome had now come back to a church that was dominated by Gentiles dominated by outsiders. Now, you can imagine there must have been some tension there. Um, I know that you probably never in a million years guessed this, but did you know that sometimes people in the church have disagreements? Did you know that? I heard a story of a person one Sunday after visiting a church, visiting a church for the first time, went back to the welcome desk after service, and wanted to get some information, wanted to uh, see what the church was about. And he saw two ladies who were smiling, ready to welcome him and thank him for coming to service. And he started up a conversation with them. And he asked, um, so what's this church about? Do y'all ever have disagreements on anything? And one of the ladies looked at him and said, no, sir. We never have disagreements on anything. But then the other lady, lady looked at the other lady who just said that and said, uh, yes, we do have disagreements. The first lady said, no, we don't. And then the other lady said, yeah, yeah, we have disagreements. What are you talking about? You're wrong. You see what's happening here? It's one thing to have disagreements. It's another to have disagreements about having disagreements. And so the church in Rome was fighting back and forth on all of these issues of how can one be justified by God? Is it by the law and the keeping of the law? Is it by works? Is it by faith? Is it by a little works and a lot of faith? Is it by a lot of faith and a little law? Like, how does this work? And so Paul stretches, uh, sets the record straight once and for all on how one is justified. And he uses prison movie tactics to do it. <laughs> you ever seen a prison movie? Usually in a prison movie, whenever someone is getting ready to go to prison, there's always someone who gives them advice on how they can stay safe. In prison, And this is how the advice usually goes. It says, listen, when you get in there, you got to show people that they cannot mess with you. So this is what you have to do. Identify the scariest dude in prison and on the first day walk right up and knock him out. 
And then once you do that, no one is going to mess with you. You ever heard logic like that in a prison movie before? You see, if there was anyone who the Jewish people would be able to say was indeed justified by their works, it would have been Abraham. Rabbis would often even teach that Abraham was the perfect picture of someone who was justified by God because of their works. And so Paul here says if he can take out the idea that Abraham was justified by works, the Jewish believers at Rome would know that Paul ain't messing around about this justification by faith alone deal. And so he goes straight to the father of Israel. And what does he say? He says, what then will we say that Abraham... Our forefather, according to the flesh, is found. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. Paul is saying Abraham may indeed have had something to boast about before other people, but not before God he didn't. Well, what do you mean, Noah? Abraham did a lot of great things, didn't he? He he left his land and went to a one that he didn't know about because God said and. How many people could do that? And how many people could rescue their nephew from turmoil over and over again? And how many men could be patient and trust God for a child in, in, in their old age? And like, how many men could do that? And how many men have a song about them? You know, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons. Had Father Abraham. Okay, that's the most you're ever going to get of me singing. But you think, oh my gosh, we sing songs about this guy in Sunday school. That's got to count for something, right? Well, maybe to us, but not before God when it comes to righteousness. You see, God's standard, church, is not yours or my standard. God's standard is perfection, holiness. And there is nothing that we can do to reach that standard in of ourselves. You see... Paul is saying that if Abraham was made righteous by his works, hypothetically that would be something to brag about. But that's impossible. You see, like us, Abraham can never earn a right standing before God through his works. And so the question becomes, how can we be made right before a holy and perfect God? Look at verse 3. As it says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was not righteous because he was the father of Israel. He was not made righteous because of his works. Rather, Abraham was made righteous because God credited him righteousness by Abraham believing and placing his faith in what God said he was able to do. Look at that word, credited there in verse 3. Let's key in on that for a second. In the Greek language, which is the original language that the New Testament was written in, this is an accounting term. And this term is used five times in these verses. And this word conveys the idea of someone crediting something to a separate account. This is where we get the teaching of the theology of imputed righteousness, which is basically just a fancy term that means this. When you put your faith in God, in Christ, God takes his righteousness and credits it to your account. The doctrine of imputation is seen all throughout the overall storyline of Scripture. And think about it. Adam and Eve's sin was imputed to us. Our sin was then imputed on Jesus. And now Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us by 
the Father. It's the transferring of a status before God, if you will. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 speaks of it this way when it says, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's what theologians often refer to as the great exchange. Jesus, by dying on the cross, takes the penalty of your sin, and as a result, you get his righteousness. So what do we learn from this? Lean real close. Don't miss this. Watch. Since our righteousness is imputed, our boasting is excluded. Because Jesus is the one who gives us our righteousness, there is no room for us to boast. In other words, since we contributed nothing to our salvation, how could we possibly boast in of ourselves? Church, we're not saved. We're not the saints because we're good. No, no, no. We're saved because He's good. We're saved because He paid the price. We're saved because He lived the life we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. Where is there room for boasting? If we were to poll the entire world and find all the people in the world that God saved because they were really impressive to Him, and then we were to run the numbers and then we were to take the results of that poll and round it up to the highest number and then take that number and manifest it in a percentile of the population of the world, the number that we would arrive at is zero. Romans 3 says there's not one who is righteous. So where is room for boasting if we contributed nothing? Or as my grandmother used to say, we ain't all that in a bag of potato chips. We are made right before God because He imputes His righteousness to our account. So what must we do in order for God to credit this righteousness to our account? Well, that leads us to our second point. Not only do we see that justification comes by accreditation, not by reputation, but secondly, justification comes by believing, not by achieving. Justification comes by believing, not by achieving. The text says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. I had someone uh, share with me once that they had a group of friends that they hung out with, and they were the best people that they knew. And they weren't Christian, but they asked me, they said, Noah, I don't see how in the world God could not accept them into heaven when they die because they're such good people. No, they don't have a relationship with Jesus, but, but they're good people. They're the best people I've ever met. They're a great family. And you know what? I, I was hearing that story, and I thought, you know, they probably are great. And to people, our works may seem like they're good enough. But before God, they're not. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. One would say that us approaching God with our works in hopes that it would save us would make as much sense as a popsicle trying to approach the sun. Same result every single time. But isn't that how we live our lives? That people would see our works and people would be impressed with us, and people would look at our house, and they would look at our cars, and they would look at our career success, and they would say, wow, they're amazing. And so we can continue to live our lives for other people, trying to build up our work so people would look at us and go, man, they're great. 
we can continue to build up our resumes of being good people with nice houses, nice cars, nice you name it. But in the end, all the works that we can muster up for people to brag on us won't matter that much in the end. I mean, isn't that why Jesus asked the question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his what? To lose his soul. What does it profit a man to wear designer clothes with a European tag when your soul is naked before God? And what does it profit a man to live in a big house in a gated community when his soul is homeless? And what does it profit a man to brag about being filthy rich when all that he has are like filthy rags before a holy God? text tells us that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Not Abraham went to God and said, God, do you see all these bullet points of what I've done for you? Do you see all these ways that I've fulfilled the law? Do you see all these things that make me great? No, no, no. Abraham simply believed God. And that's how he got his righteousness. If you were to ask me if I was wrapped around anyone's finger, um, I would tell you no, but I would be lying to you. Um, the reason why is due to my niece, Ellie Grace. Here's a picture of my niece, Ellie Grace. Um, I love this girl so much. So much so that whenever she asks Uncle Noah for something, Uncle Noah gets it for her. Our tradition at her softball games um, have, have started to be that as soon as she gets done with the game, she'll run off the field and I'll pick her up and then we'll go to the concession stands and I'll buy her whatever it is that she wants. And man, I just feel like the greatest uncle in the world. But I noticed lately that uh, me always giving her what she wants, I think I might have created a little monster in the process. The other day I was, I was watching Kentucky play and I I heard my phone ringing and looked down at my phone and saw that my mother-in-law was calling. Um, side note, tomorrow uh, my wife Hannah and I will celebrate our two-year wedding anniversary tomorrow. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's put up with me this long, and that's the grace of God. Um, so two years in, listen, I know how to be a son-in-law. I know how this thing works. Two years, that's like almost 600 days or more than 600 days. I'm not good at math. I grew up in Kentucky. I know it's a lot of days. And so I get this call from my mother-in-law, and fellas, I've figured out the, in these two years what you do when your mother-in-law calls. There's only one answer. Always, 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 when your mother-in-law calls you, you let it go to voicemail, right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm, not, I'm purposely not looking at my wife right now because I bet you she didn't like that joke. But I answered the phone, and uh, on the other line, I expect to hear my mother-in-law, but I hear just this tiny, sweet voice say, Uncle Noah, and I, I instantly realize that it's my niece, and I say, Ellie, what's wrong? What, what, what's going on? And, and I hear on the other line, I'm with Grammy, which is my mother-in-law, and we're shopping for shoes, but Grammy said that I can only get one pair, but I like the other pair that I picked out. Now, a rational person who isn't led by emotions, would understand the wisdom in that. Okay, just don't want to spoil a kid too bad. One pair of shoes, that's all she needs. But 
I'm not a rational person. And so instead I say, she said what? Put your Grammy on the phone right now. And so my mother-in-law gets on the phone and I say, hey, um, I know she wants that other pair of shoes. Uh, I'm going to buy them for her. I'm going to Venmo you some money. You buy the shoes. Got it? Cool. Click. Boom. It wasn't exactly like that. But yeah, I Venmo her the money. Now, there's probably ten sermon illustrations in that story, mostly, that could illustrate how I need to get a grip and stop being so emotional. But did you notice something? When my niece called me, she didn't explain why she deserved those extra pair of shoes. She didn't say, I've been this good with my chores at home and I'm making these grades and I've kept my room clean. No, 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 no. She simply, in her childlikeness, don't miss that, which is how God wants us to come to him like a child. In her childlikeness, she simply believed that if she called her uncle, he would figure it out. And because of my love for her, watch this, I transferred funds to her account so she could have what she needed. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God transferred righteousness to Abraham's account simply because he believed that God would and could do so. He doesn't come to God and say, God, here's why I deserve you to transfer righteousness to me. No, no, no. He simply acted in faith and believed that God would. And so how did I show my niece that I would and could credit something to an account for her? With a gift. And how does God show us that he is willing and can transfer righteousness to our account? Here's the answer. With a gift. The text goes on to say in verse 4, Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is credited as righteousness. Paul is saying, you're not getting what you earned. You're getting a gift. You see, by the authority of Scripture, we know uh, that salvation is a gift from God. It's simply a gift that he gives us. Ephesians uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says it like this. For you are saved by grace through faith alone. And this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. There's nothing more annoying than trying to give a gift to someone and them just not receiving it. Anybody with me? It's like, oh, let me pay you back, or oh, I'll do this. It's like, it's a gift. Just take it. Paul is saying to the Romans here, stop trying to pay back God for this gift of salvation. Just take it. And so my question for you this morning is, if you have never done so before, would you take God's gift of salvation that he has offered to you freely. The overall message of this passage is that God made a covenant with Abraham and that because Abraham believed God, God would do the work and Abraham would simply need to trust that God would act good on his word. And the overall prompting of the Spirit's leading this morning is that God makes the same promise to me and you today. We should trust Him, rest in His finished work because He has always and always will keep His promises. 
Yeah, the whole foundation that this text is built upon comes from a passage in, in Genesis 15. So really quickly, would you turn over to Genesis chapter 15 in your Bible? We're going to look at this passage and then we're done, I promise. Yes, I do realize that we'll be done in a second is the most live phrase that preachers say. Genesis chapter 15, where we pick up in verse 6, what's going on here is God has previously told Abraham right before this that he's going to bless him as the father of all the nations, of the nation of Israel. And, and his descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky. They're, just, they're going to be immaculate. And eventually God's going to save the world and bring about his promise of salvation to all people through his lineage. And then we pick up to Abraham's response in verse 6. And it says this, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? And then in verse 9, we see some strange things happen. Verse 9, he said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half and laid the pieces opposite of each other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, though, but Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness was descended on him. Skip down to verse 17. Verse 17 says, When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot, and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River. And so that's a strange passage, wouldn't you say? I mean, what is it about, you know, the, the cow and the, and, and the ram and the turtle dove? What's, what's going on here? Why, do, why were they cut in half? Like, like what's going on? Well, if you know about the background of Jewish culture, what you would understand is what's about to take place here by Abram bringing all of these animals is a Jewish covenant ceremony is about to take place. So this is what would happen back in this culture. Whenever you were to make an agreement or um, draft up a contract with someone else, the way that you would sign that contract is they would take these animals, they would cut them in half, and they would put some over here, some over here, right? And then what they would do is, is let's say that I'm entering into a contract, a covenant with you. What me and you would do is we would line up before the animals, we would hold hands, and then we would walk through the middle of these cut animals. And by doing so, what you were saying by doing that is that you were signing the contract. You were going to hold up your end of the bargain. And if you didn't, these animals would remind you that this is how you would end up. And so it was a blood oath. It was an oath saying, if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain, let me be cut off. Let me be stricken. Let me be cursed. Let me die. And so that's what's happening there. But you may ask, what's, what's the smoking fire pot and a torch have to do with any of this? Do you remember 
the story of when God was leading his people out of slavery into the wilderness on the way to the promised land? He took them out of Egypt. Do you remember how he led them? Exodus 13, verse 21. Check this out if, if you need to remember. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud or smoke to lead them on their way during the day and in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel day or night. In theology, this is what we would call a theophany which is a physical manifestation of God. See, here God manifests himself in the cloud by day and fire by night to lead his people. You know, this isn't unusual to see God do this type of thing in the Scripture. When God meets Moses on the mountain, he manifests himself in a cloud. And I think we all learned in Sunday school as children the story of Exodus 3 of God and and Moses in the burning bush, right? And so what's the obvious answer to the smoking fire pot and the torch? It's this. God manifests himself in these and passes through the animals to sign the covenant. But do you remember what the text told us Abraham is doing at this moment? He's not walking through with God. Abram is sleeping. So what is is this trying to tell us here that God goes in by himself. I started off the message reminding us of, you know, most of the time we're, we're not worried that God is going to let us down. We're worried that we'll let ourselves down. We're not worried that God won't hold up his end of the bargain. We're worried and doubtful that we'll hold up our end. But what happens here is something amazing. God puts Abram to sleep and then passes through the pieces by himself, signifying that this covenant of what he was going to do through Abraham and his descendants, God was going to be solely responsible for. And often in this Jewish culture, whenever a king would enter into a covenant with a lesser person, either they would walk in together or watch this, the lesser person would walk in by themselves. Here we see the king go in by himself as to say, I will put all the responsibility, all the bearing on myself. And Abram, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, it's not going to be on you, it's going to be on me. And he does this to show him that he is willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that he will bless his descendants, that he will save the world through his lineage. God says, Abram, I'm even willing to die to make this happen. And he did. Even if it meant that he had to be cut off, even if it meant that he had to be struck. What does Isaiah 53, verse 8 say about Jesus? He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who has considered his fate? For he was cut off from the lands of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. What is God speaking to us this morning? If you haven't heard anything else, hear this. Salvation is not a team effort. Justification is not a team effort. It is God is the one solely who does the work in justifying us. All we have to do simply is believe him. Friend, Christian, Sunday school teacher, 
choir member. Maybe for far too long you've been trying to earn God's love and favor. You've been trying to hold up your end of the bargain. Let me press something into you this morning if that's you. I think maybe the reason why you keep falling short is because you think that you have to hold up your end of the bargain. That it's on you to make sure that this thing between you and God is done right. No, 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 friend. The power simply comes in resting in the finished work of Jesus. You know, Christianity is so different from any other religion. In the other religions, it's about us getting to God through our works. But in Christianity, our faith teaches us that we didn't get to God. Instead, God came to us. And here's the difference between the other religions. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. But Jesus Christ is as alive today as he was over 2,000 years ago when he was walking on this earth. And the reality is, is that that same spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead is the spirit that lives in us. And so a preacher doesn't have a different spirit than you. It's not a different spirit that indwells the Sunday school teacher than it does the Sunday school member. We all have the same spirit. But here's my question this morning, church. In your walk with Jesus, would you let the spirit do the work and just get out of his way? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we believe that salvation comes by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But God, as we may agree with that statement, so often we don't live our lives like we believe it. So God, help us rest in your finished work. With our eyes closed and our heads still bowed, let me ask you, friend, have you ever placed your faith in the saving work of Jesus? Have you ever turned from your sin, repented, and believed that Jesus was the only one who could save you? Maybe for so long you've been trying to earn God's favor, but you need to simply accept what he did for you. The Bible tells us that all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's not any special words or special formula. If that's you this morning, just call on him. Just pray to him and say, God, save me. And he'll do so. Maybe there's someone in here, there's some of us who we've done that, but we keep putting off baptism. And we need to put on the uniform of Jesus. You can make that decision this morning. Maybe you've realized that this is the place where you want to be taught to rest in the finished work of Jesus and you want this to become your church family, you can make that decision this morning. I'm going to pray in just a moment and we're going to stand to our feet. I'm going to be standing down front. If there's any decision that you need to make, whether it's salvation, baptism, church membership, or maybe you just want to come and pray, my prayer is is that you wouldn't walk out the doors without doing what God has called you to do this morning. Jesus, we love you. 
Have your way in this place as we continue to worship. It's in your name. Amen.